Hello and welcome to Zip Files, a weekly technology news catch-up show. This week, you'll need to be wearing a set of sturdy undergarments, because we're going to war. Not the kind of war where guns get pulled, though, but one that is fought with information. You might chuff at the sound of that. Pfft! Information wars aren't that scary. Sticks and stones can break me bones, but words can never hurt me. Blah, blah, blah. Well, you're wrong. The war has all the makings of run for the hills, paint yourself green, and pretend to be a plant. Stay tuned and you'll see. Around that, we'll pepper you with all the interesting tech news of the week. For your entertainment pleasure, a human friend of mine named Christian will be joining us. Hi, I'm Christian Hines. My hair colour is a mixture of quite a dyed orange and then a sort of like mucky brown underneath. <laughs> Christian absolutely loved speaking to us this week. Like what? Oh, I don't know, mate. I don't know. I hate these questions. I thought it was a good discussion. It's, it's all good, Christian. Just... No, I'm freaking out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm out. <laughs> all right, let's get all caught up with this week in tech. A few weeks ago on the Zip Files, we spoke about China's scarily accurate facial recognition systems. Systems that allow them to monitor their citizens and pick up fugitives. It turns out that us British are up to the same tricks. Or at least we're trying our best. At the 2017 Champions League final in Cardiff, Welsh cops whipped out some facial recognition cameras to try and catch wanted individuals. Unfortunately, their tech was overly suspicious, flagging thousands of football goers as potential criminals. Of these, 92% were false positives. I.e. 92% were just your average human. They did catch 173 real bad guys, though. Civil liberties advocates are pissed, but Welsh police say that no members of the public have complained about the AFR identity system. It's weird. In autocratic China, I feel like this tech could be abused and quickly lead to a dystopia. In the UK, I sort of trust the authorities to be decent with it. Am I just being ignorant? I'd be interested to see what your thoughts were on this. Just drop me a cheeky email, evan at thezipfiles.io, or message me on LinkedIn. In 2011, the US space shuttle was retired, leaving NASA reliant on Russia to fly American astronauts to the International Space Station. This retirement came after two shuttle disasters that saw 14 astronauts lose their lives. Now SpaceX want to take humans into space, and they might do so as early as this year. But safety is a big pain point with space. Rockets are inherently dangerous, and no amount of research or simulations can fully account for risks. There is one SpaceX design choice in particular, though, that is drawing the ire of experts. In order to fit more fuel into the Falcon 9 rocket, SpaceX load propellant at super-cold temperatures, something which needs to happen immediately before launch, and would happen with astronauts already on board. A spark during this process could set off an explosion. Watchdogs and NASA advisory groups have warned this method is, quote, contrary to booster safety criteria that has been in place for over 50 years, end quote. They think it's simply too dangerous. In order to get NASA's approval, the chance of death can be no greater than one in every 270 flights. By the way, wow, that's not that rare, is it? Anyway, that is the rocket business, I suppose. Before NASA's first shuttle launch in 1981, engineers estimated the chance of death at between 1 in 500 and 1 in 5,000 flights. Subsequent analysis revealed that it had been 1 in 12. 
Let's hope SpaceX get their launches right. I'm on the I'm on the I'm on the stubbies. I've never been these. so disappointed by beer beer in my life than when I have a beer. Than the beer at all. Yeah. You're you're mistaken. I'm sorry. You're, you're fundamentally wrong. <laughs> These have got exactly one unit in them. So they're like perfectly non-committal. You can just chuck them down. It's a dangerous game, actually. Slippery slope. Yeah, fair enough. Because you can put me a door at breakfast and yeah. no one will. The real estate advertising company Zillow posted a fine quarter in line with expectations on Monday. The company doesn't actually make any money yet, but it's growing nicely and rapidly on top of its $1 billion annual revenue. The market values the company at $10 billion and thinks it's got a pretty sweet risk-free gig. But management want to change that last bit. Zillow is starting a home flipping business. (laughs) No, not that kind of home flipping. Zillow will use their own cash to buy, touch up and sell houses. Wall Street aren't happy. From home flipping, the company aimed to make an average of $3,500 on a $250,000 home, a meagre 1.4% profit. But Spencer Raskoff, Zillow's CEO, argues that the market is huge and that if they can just capture 5% of the volume, then they'll be on their way to an annual profit of $1 billion. To be fair, that is a lot of cash. It just remains to be seen whether they'll manage to execute the plan without losing everything. Spotify and Apple Music are standing up against hateful conduct. The music streaming services will stop promoting music by R. Kelly in response to widespread allegations of serious misconduct towards women and girls. One of the more harrowing accusations comes from a woman who claims that the singer had sexually abused her since the age of 14. R. Kelly's music will still be available on Spotify and Apple Music, but it will no longer be in the service's featured playlists. R. Kelly gave a defiant performance despite protests in North Carolina this week. He refused to tone down his sexually suggestive songs and act. It's good that Apple and Spotify have taken this action, in my opinion. Hopefully they'll go further if he is found guilty. Hold up, R. Kelly. I am not one of your groupies. The New York Times reported this week that the Intercontinental Exchange, the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange, is building a trading platform to allow its institutional investors to buy and hold Bitcoin. According to people familiar with the matter, the NYSE will offer a swap contract that will let investors get their hands on Bitcoin as soon as the following day. This is encouraging and legitimizing news for the often berated cryptocurrency. The swap contracts are financial instruments that will be regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Once the genie is out of the bottle and institutional trading of Bitcoin begins in earnest, there will be little opportunity to backtrack. This news, along with the recent announcement by Goldman Sachs that they are seriously contemplating opening a Bitcoin trading desk, is a huge and long-in-the-making vote of confidence from the hardened wolves of Wall Street. Me, personally, well, I'm crushing it with $24.25 of Bitcoin at the time of writing. Drinks on me, or maybe just tap water. Welcome to this week's Long Listen. My younger brother used to love all things sweet. 
I used to enjoy winding him up. So, it was his birthday, maybe like his fourth or fifth, and in classic style, he had candles on his birthday cake. I saw an opportunity for an historic gag. Alright Daniel, well done on blowing those edible candles out. Why don't you have the first bite? So, the poor boy ate the biggest of the certainly not edible candles. This was a case of disinformation. I had intentionally deceived. Information is a powerful thing, and many think that manipulation is now more threatening than armies or bombs. In 2016, Russia led a state-sponsored campaign on social media to influence the direction of the US presidential elections, something that nobody had the foresight to stop. Since then, it's become increasingly obvious that big tech has unwittingly created a vehicle for World War III. Only this time, it isn't being fought on the fields of Flanders, but the feeds of Facebook. The war is in its nascent stages. It's the 21st century's 1939. Artificial intelligence and an ever more connected world will soon bring us to a bitterly worse reality than we might expect. A reality which is indistinguishably blended with falsehoods. Information attacks have become a serious threat in a short space of time. Back in 2014, the World Economic Forum placed the spread of misinformation online as the 10th most significant trend to watch that year. Then, less than two years later, it was directly affecting American democracy through vehicles like the now-shamed and bankrupt Cambridge Analytica. By the way, it's not just pesky Putin and the world's autocrats that use information to alter hearts and minds. A study at Oxford University found that since 2010, 28 countries have participated. Of those, the USA has the most cyber troops waging state-sponsored cross-border information wars. The thing is that we barely know what to do in the face of these geopolitical digital information attacks. There is no Geneva Convention or UN Treaty to define the scope and punishment of cyber meddling. Indeed, the world's leaders haven't done all that much except turn to big tech and say, you're very silly, aren't you? Can you stop being so silly? Oh, and by the way, what's the internet again? My granddaughter likes it. What can we expect the future of the global information war to look like? Well, as identified by Aviv Avadja, Chief Technology Officer at the University of Michigan's Center for Social Media Responsibility, it will be waged on three fronts. 1. Diplomatic and reputational manipulation. 2. Automated laser phishing. And 3. Computational propaganda. Okay, there were some big words there. Let's dive into what each of those three militarized fronts will look like. Diplomatic and reputational manipulation is the creation of disinformation to influence geopolitical decisions or attack a person's reputation. Put simply, it's creating fake stuff to make someone look bad or to make someone believe in something that didn't happen. It is said that a picture is worth a thousand words and that video is then worth a million. If you see a video of your friend doing a backflip into your estranged uncle's paddling pool, your initial reaction would probably be, damn, nice backflip, and wow, my uncle's got a paddling pool. Not... Wait a second, this can't be real. We believe video. Video is hard and expensive to believably fake. Or at least it has been traditionally. Researchers at the University of Washington have recently used AI to create videos of Obama saying things he never actually said. I've watched the videos and they are terrifyingly believable. In fact, I would never have questioned their authenticity had I not known they were fake. It doesn't take a big brain then to realise that fake videos loom over the information war like an atom bomb. And then there's our second front, automated laser fishing. Don't worry, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger firing light beams at shoals of haddock. Actually, do worry, it's much less funny. 
Laser phishing is when AI impersonates someone that you know in order to get you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do. Like, for example, giving it your credit card information or, if you're a really big dog, leaking state secrets. I know to ignore a Nigerian prince who pops up in my email telling me I've won loads of diamonds. On the other hand, if a fake account believably purporting to be one of my friends told me I'd won loads of diamonds, I'd probably email them anything they wanted. Let's hear from Aviv Ovadja again. Alarmism can be good. You should be alarmist about this stuff. We are so screwed, it's beyond what most of us can imagine. Thanks, Aviv. And then there's our final front, computational propaganda. This is the taking advantage of things like social media algorithms to wage widespread public influence campaigns. The vulnerability is cooked into the way that newsfeed algorithms like Facebook's work. They prioritise content that is most engaging and shareable. One of the first things we spoke about on the Zip Files is that fake news is the most engaging and shareable of all news. As humans, we love novel and shocking stories. When you consider that 40% of the world's population are on social media, and that for many it is their primary way of staying informed, it is worrying to know that falsehoods are so readily spread on the platforms. But then, computational propaganda is not just about spreading fake news. This week, Congress released all of the adverts that Russia ran on Facebook during the 2016 presidential election. They were designed to create division, not necessarily by way of disinformation, but rather by way of presenting divisive messages and providing spaces for like-minded people to gather. So how do we fight back against the intentional spread of fear, uncertainty and doubt? How do we wage war on these three digital information fronts? One thing is certain, there is no time to lose. We need to develop a scalable way to spot high-quality fake videos, images and audio, because soon every Tom, Dick and Henrietta will be able to make them. We need to work towards stopping computational propaganda, or at least reducing its effectiveness. And we need governments to regulate whilst big tech steps up to make sure that truth becomes the currency most traded on their platforms, rather than falsehood. There are two ways to fight fake video that seem to be scalable. Both initiatives come out of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the US. One method algorithmically detects manipulations in images and videos to identify them as having been faked. The other method cross-references the data of the image or video across the entire internet, with the hope that if the content is fake, then it will flag its constituent parts and thus label it as synthetic rather than real. Stopping computational propaganda might in fact be harder. There are again two approaches that are hopeful, yet barely developed. Firstly, we might try to algorithmically collect and categorize instances of digital propaganda to identify bots and deliberately misleading accounts. Secondly, we could deploy a good bot network to disrupt the bad bots, a sort of neutralizing tactic. But the latter seems sort of unideal. Yes, it's not looking great, but let's not run to Mars just yet. The thing is that tech can fix tech. As long as there are more good tech people than bad tech people, we should be okay. Unless we take our eye off the ball, that is. And by the way, our eye has been firmly 180 degrees from the ball for a while now. Anyway, if we can swing that eye back around, mix in some healthy regulation that protects privacy and restricts the abilities of companies and nations to hyper-target internet users, cough GDPR, cough, and big tech carries on crawling out of its oh Christ, we're sorry, we didn't realise we were so intertwined with the fabric of society ignorance cave, then we should be fine. Hopefully, maybe, 
fingers crossed. I'm still sleeping in my cupboard though and wearing tinfoil gloves. I think I kept it for a while, I probably you, threw it out. You kept the half-eaten candle? I did for a while, yes, because I thought it was funny. <laughs> so then I got to throw things out the best piece of advice you've ever been given oh, oh. well when i was a primary school teacher mm. there was uh, a little boy i taught let's call him harvey because his name was harvey <laughs> <laughs> Data protection. i remember we were doing this PSHE lesson yeah and um, we were talking about like what we do when we're sad and how to like deal with that and this he was in year two so it would have been like six or seven and he was just like when i'm sad i just put all my problems into a boat and just push it away and i was like fair although i've i've I've, I've like considered this and i was talking to jack the other day and he reckons that in later life this little boy harvey is just gonna have a bad day and just see this armada of boats of all of his deepest problems that he's pushed away it's just gonna like approach him and he's just gonna be so shook When an experimental Uber in self-driving mode struck and killed pedestrian Elaine Hertzberg in March, investigators leapt to discover the cause of the accident. In the first couple of days of reporting after the incident, the car was blamed for not seeing Elaine as she crossed the dark road. As of Monday, that theory has been revised by Uber, whose executives now say that the car did sense Hertzberg in its path, but decided to ignore her. The issue then was one of tuning. It is necessary for self-driving cars to ignore some things that are picked up by its sensors. You don't want the car swerving because of a plastic bag fluttering across its path. However, Uber's waitings meant that this car was tragically dismissive. The ride-hailing startup planned to restart their self-driving car program in the coming months. In other autonomous car news, Waymo, Google's answer to driverless car tech, announced this week that they would be launching a commercial self-driving car service in Phoenix, Arizona, later this year. I was partaking in my pseudo-productive ritual of scrolling the LinkedIn newsfeed when I first saw it. Initially I thought, wow, that's extremely cool. And then as the video progressed, I started to feel a bit worried. I'm talking of course about a demonstration that Google made at their annual IO developer conference earlier this week. A demonstration in which Google Duplex, an AI personal assistant, booked a hair salon appointment and restaurant for its human arbiter. But Duplex doesn't just navigate the interwebs and click correctly to book an appointment. No, that would be far too easy. Instead, it calls the hair salon and restaurant. The conversations are handled adeptly by Google Duplex, despite being at times very difficult to follow. Somewhere between the eerie ums and ahs, and the fact that its human calling partners didn't realise it was an AI, has freaked a lot of people out and raised a lot of questions. One of these questions I'd like to put to you. Should machines have to tell the people they're speaking to that they are machines? Let me know what you think. 
This week, Congress released every Russian Facebook and Instagram ad that ran during the 2016 US presidential elections. Over 3,500 ads were released in an effort to educate the American people on the level and breadth of manipulation that had been attempted by Russian operatives between June 2015 and August 2017. It has been concluded by the intelligence community that the Russian campaign was focused on aiding Trump. The ads range from direct statements on contentious political points, like, quote, what will happen if Hitlery becomes president, end quote, to relatively innocuous memes that were used to grow followership. If you could time travel, where would you go? Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. The thing is with that is that apparently any time before now just smell a lot like piss and <laughs> wherever you <laughs> went. So you've always got to bear that in mind. Yeah. Um, I definitely wouldn't hit up medieval times. I think there's a lot of weird things going on there. I'd probably just like get really smashed and then get syphilis or something. <laughs> That's ambitious. <laughs> yeah. Robin Hood is that fictional bloke who wears green tights, lives in the forest, and shoots his arrows at naughty rich people. Robin Hood is also a stock brokerage app aimed at millennial investors, which offers zero fee trading. That's right, you don't have to pay a nickel of fees to Wolf of Wall Street your way into holding a company. The five-year-old fintech startup also recently launched a crypto trading exchange touting zero fees, which has been oversubscribed since its launch. They're doing pretty well. This week, Robin Hood announced a Series D fundraising round of $363 million, valuing the once serially rejected startup at some $5.6 billion US cash money dollars. That's right, you heard it. They were once the laughing stock of investors world round and were rejected 75 times before first raising money. 75 times. It just goes to show that tenacity pays. Maybe my coal-powered scooter will be funded after all. Drinks on me round two. I really like this bit of news. Call me sentimental if you want. Another announcement coming out of Google's I.O. developer conference. The company's photo storage app is soon to get a sure to be popular upgrade. It will allow users to easily colorize black and white photos. There are already buzzing online communities who painstakingly colorize old photos to moving effect. If you like the sound of this kind of thing, then I really do encourage you to check out the colorized history page on Reddit. The top colorizations there are, simply put, works of art. Google's photo manipulating AI will open this enlivening technology up to everyone. Think of all those old family photographs that will suddenly feel more real. This is a clever development by Google and one that is certain to bring in new users. And it's done. <laughs> it's over. You can open your eyes now. Take it all in. Hopefully the tech world around you makes a bit more sense. You're all caught up. If you enjoyed the show, then please share the zip files with a friend. If you hated it, then please share it with an enemy. Also, sorry to be hashtag that guy, but if you're feeling bright and breezy, happy and friendly, then rating the zip files five stars on Apple Podcasts would help me out massively. I love you all. Until next Sunday, enjoy your oat milk lattes and have a great week. Bye.